Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Redlands campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Well, what a month it's been so far, hey? December. It seems to get crazier and crazier. Maybe it's because this was a year in which we moved city. Uh, changed jobs, did all that stuff, our kids changed schools, but I am ready to go uh, into 2022, Um, not wanting to wish anything away for the rest of the year and what God might have in store, but come on, who's looking forward to a holiday? Yeah, I apologize to those who aren't having holidays, but I am, so um, too bad. All right, last weekend we had our Carol's Roadshow. And what a phenomenal weekend. Uh, Six services across the weekend. Uh, Ben, I think, had the rest of the week off, uh, leaned on his sick pay um, to to have some time off. But uh, what a fantastic job those guys did. We were here Friday night. And it was a phenomenal night. Not just what happened on stage, but everything that came together. I uh, particularly want to thank Adrian and his, and his catering team uh, for what they uh, did for us on the night. Thank you again, brother. And I've done it. As soon as you thank one, you think of all the other people who I haven't mentioned. But uh, while I'm on him, just thanks so much for the year, mate. Uh, you've, been a, you've been a gift to our church, brother. You and Celia and the way that you've served us faithfully each Sunday morning. I know that I appreciate so much my coffee before and after the service. It's fantastic. Um, but yeah, let's thank Adrian again. He does a fantastic job. All is volunteer. All is volunteer. So through the month of December, each, each Sunday in December, we've been doing this Christmas treasure series based off this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. I mean, talking about how that, that's, that's the nature of the kingdom of God, that when we truly discover it, when our eyes are opened to who God is and what his kingdom is on earth, there is something that happens in us, and, and I assume it's happened in you because you're sitting here today, where we go, everything that I've thought that's important in my life, fails to compare to what I've discovered in the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying in this parable. That's what we've been looking at. It's such a short but punchy parable, my favorite parable that Jesus tells. We've been considering this parable and framing it as our Christmas treasure. So the first week we talked about treasuring Jesus. We unpacked that parable in a bit more detail. Last week, we we talked about treasuring his promises with his people. What a great moment it was to then whip the mic around and have people share. That was brilliant, wasn't it? Good to hear that. And today, uh, before we wrap it up on Christmas Day next Saturday, 8.30am for one hour, uh, today we're going to be considering this parable and what it means to treasure his presence, to treasure his, not his presence that we unwrap and get as a gift, but presence, E-N-C-E. Just a reminder again, there's no service next Sunday. Uh, We're doing an online service only because we've got Christmas Day on the Saturday, you can have Sunday morning off, but you can tune in online, 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. For, for a Boxing Day service. Let me pray before we get into today's message. God, thank you. Our hearts are full. Our hearts are full because our faith is not circumstantial. We thank you that no matter what happens around us, that you are good and your love endures forever. We thank you that your promise to us, and as we heard last week, you don't need to say, I promise, I promise, I pinky promise. You just say, I will. And you do. And we thank you that you said, I will work for the good of those who love me, who are called according to my purposes. And we thank you that in that call, that call has reached our ears and transformed us. And so we are full of joy because of your goodness and your kindness and your grace 
and your mercy. May we treasure that this Christmas. As, as we look at your word now, may, may Holy Spirit, you come and bring great comfort and peace and joy as we remember again and again and again how good you are, how kind you are, how faithful you are, how just and righteous you are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you may have heard me talk about Tim Keller a bit if you've been coming for a while. And you'll, I guarantee if you haven't, you'll hear me at some point talk about Tim Keller. He's one of my heroes in the faith. Um, I was in the same room as him. I had the opportunity to be in the same room as him with 2,000 other people. But it was me and Tim. We are in the same room together. And I was there for a conference. And after he spoke, and I've got to tell you, he spoke so well as he always does, I don't know whether it was nerves or how much water I'd drunk, but I needed to go to the toilet. And we were sitting like where Jim and Ann are, right in the back corner in this massive auditorium. And Tim had preached here, so multiply the distance that they are feeling from me right now by about 10. That's how far away I was. There was a toilet right there. But no, no, no. I wanted to go to the toilet near the green room where he had walked off. So I walked across the, this massive auditorium thinking to myself, heart pumping, because I'm not the sort of guy that feels very comfortable to walk up to someone famous and just introduce myself casually. But I'm like, so I'm walking to the toilet going, I have no idea what I'm going to do or say if I see him up close. I have absolutely no idea. But I'm going to position myself to be in his presence. So as I got closer increasingly needing to go to the toilet because increasingly my nerves were increasing. I still had no idea what I'd say or do. I st- uh, the, the, the wouldn't sound foolish. Probably nothing would come out of my mouth. I am the sort of person that clams up in the presence of fame. Just to give that story an ending, I didn't even see him. He disappeared. I don't know what happened. But I wonder for you, have you ever had a chance to meet a hero? Have you ever had a chance to be in the presence of someone famous? And I wonder what that moment was like for you. How did you respond in the presence of this person who you had admired or loved or whatever from a distance for so long? And then when you had the chance to meet them or even be close to them, how did you respond? You know, when Jesus comes back, everyone will know about it. It will be a moment like no other. I actually don't think we're quite prepared for that moment in terms of the global impact it will have. Like everybody everywhere is going to know that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. Everyone's gonna know. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Some will do it with joy, some will do it with deep regret. Jesus is Lord. He's the one who was right about life. He's the one who was right about humanity. It's gonna be a moment like no other. The first time he came was absolutely nothing like that. It was right on the other end of the spectrum, except for the angels having a party in the sky. That was pretty phenomenal. That was a a big moment. But there was not much about his presence that first time he came that caused much of a stir. It certainly didn't draw a huge crowd. There was a crowd, of course, but it was relatively small and very unpretentious. No one was there with placards, screaming, fainting, because Jesus was in the house. It was very small, very unpretentious, in the middle of a world that was in utter chaos. A census had been called, people were everywhere, Bethlehem was busy, Uh, Joseph and Mary had to get back to their hometown, there was no room in any hotels. You You know the story, even if you haven't been around church, you know the story of Jesus in the manger, but it was not a very big deal in terms of that moment in history. It's had a profound impact throughout history, but when it happened, 
it wasn't actually that big a deal. As much as we will all react when he comes again, I don't think he would have got much of a reaction from you or from me if we were there when he first came. And that wasn't true for everybody though, because there were a few people who had a significant reaction when Jesus was born. And as we open a very familiar Christmas passage, a passage that I think we know pretty well around Christmas time, we'll see the reaction of three different people or three different groups of people to the presence of Jesus. Let me read to you from Matthew 12, verses 1 to 12. Be on the screen behind me, but if you want to open it uh, on your digital device or if you're old school paper, Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. Hear God's word. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of the King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. You you think that if the king's disturbed, all the people will be as well. Like you don't want a cranky king, particularly in this day when kings function like tyrants. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So there's three groups of people here, three people, three groups of people who I want to consider their reaction, their response, how they, how they acted when Jesus' presence came that first time and think about how we might react to the presence of Jesus. The first person I want us to think about and consider is King Herod, Herod, Herod the Great, self-titled. Herod Herod the Great. In 2017, Moonlight won the Best Picture Award at the Oscars, but only after a super awkward moment. You you, you can go and watch this moment on YouTube, I can guarantee you, it is super awkward. For whatever reason, La La Land had been named as the winner. The crew had made their way up onto the stage, the stage was full of the La La Land crew, and the producers, the ones who give all the money, started making their speeches saying thank you to all everyone. They got to the third producer before this very awkward moment happened where someone came onto the stage and you can see this, this moment where this guy with headphones on tries to take the Oscar off the person. It's really quite funny, you can go home and watch it. Hopefully that's not your main takeaway from today's message, but you will remember to go and watch it. I can't imagine anything more awkward or humiliating than thinking you're the star of the show only to be completely upstaged 
You think everything at the party is for you. You think that that award is for you. You think all the people are here for you only to find out that they're not. They're here for someone else. I tried to rack my brain if that moment's ever happened to me. It has a little bit, but nothing very funny that I could give as an illustration. <laughs> in, in a moment like that, and maybe you've had a moment like that, you, you look and feel like a complete fool. And I reckon at a way more deeper level, this is how... Herod felt when the Magi came to him and said, where is this born king, this king born, this born king of the Jews? You know what I mean? Herod, let me tell you a little bit about Herod. Herod wasn't a Jew by birth, but he was raised as a Jew and he found his way to be king through strong and favorable family connections to Caesar. He was kind of set up to be king. He was essentially, did a bit of research this week, what, what you call a client king. He was put there by the imperial power to say, you rule, but you don't rule as a Jew, you rule as our appointee. So you can imagine because of that, Herod wasn't very popular among the Jews. He looked like a bit of a traitor. And I reckon, I reckon what that produced in Herod was this very low self-confidence, this insecurity, where he always felt like he had to prove himself. And he did this, he, and I reckon he, he probably succeeded a little bit because he tried to prove himself through a whole lot of building projects. I don't know about you, but when I, when I, when I say the, the, those two words, building project in a church building, I get very nervous and a shiver runs down my spine. But Herod loved them. Herod loved building projects. And one of the building projects he did that I reckon won favor with the Jews was that he rebuilt the temple. So I'm going to win these people over by rebuilding their temple. And when, with his insecurity... As, as the leader of the Jews, but working, them being popular, but working hard to make them his fans. I reckon when he heard that a group of foreign dignitaries were coming to Jerusalem to see the king, I wonder if his thoughts went to Solomon, King Solomon, his predecessor from years before, and, and the visit to King Solomon from Queen Sheba. You can read about that in 1 Kings 10, but what, what was going on here is a foreign queen was coming to pay homage to the king of the Jews. And so when Herod hears, oh, Herod, um, blessed one, King Herod the Great, whatever, 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 there's some foreign dignitaries here, men from the east who have come and they want counsel with you. They, they, and he's gone, well, my time has come. They're here for me. They're here to pay homage to me, just like Queen Sheba did with Solomon. I remember learning about that because I was raised a Jew. This was his moment. This was his time. So how humiliating it was for Herod when what they say to him is, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. You think an obvious place to come would be to the king's palace in Jerusalem? But we're not here for you, Herod. Where is this boy? Where is this baby that has been born king of the Jews? Notice their words, not born to be king, born king. He's a king already. Now these magi were looking for moonlight when Herod was in La La Land. Why, why did Herod have this violent reaction. And we can read between the lines and know that the way he reacted was aggressive and militant. He tried to deceive the Magi to say, oh, come, come back and let me know where he is because I, I, want, to, I want to worship him. We're told he was disturbed. That, that are not, not, not the words of a disturbed man. They're the words of a deceitful man trying to work out where this king is so that he can kill him. He says, tell me the exact time the star came so I can know the age of this baby 
Because then what comes next in, in the passage that follows is that Herod orders the infanticide of every boy under two. What a horrendous moment in history. Why this reaction? Why does Herod have such a strong and aggressive reaction to the presence of Jesus? Well, Herod was building a name for himself. Herod was building his own kingdom. Herod was bagging up his own treasure. And therefore, Jesus, who was born king, was a threat to him, threatening to pull the rug out from under his feet. He was aggressively unwilling to part with his treasure to make any space for this so-called king. So insecure and so furious was Herod that he would go on to order, order the slaughter of every boy to and under, all to protect his treasure. Now, this is going to sound a little bit harsh when I say this, but sometimes we are like Herod. We work hard to build a name for ourselves. We work hard to establish and to protect our kingdoms, to build up our treasures. Anything that threatens that, well, it, 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 it's perceived as just that, a threat. And what do you do with threats? You eliminate them. You fight them. Herod knew that this born king threatened his treasure, and in many ways he was right. What is true for Herod is true for us. Jesus threatens our treasure. Jesus threatens to undermine and pull the rug out from us everything that we've thought gives us security and meaning and purpose. All of that is under threat from this king. And when his presence is with us, if we are so attached to our treasure like Herod was, Jesus will be a threat. How do we react in the presence of a king like Jesus. The next isn't a person, but a, a group of people described in this passage as the chief priests and teachers of the law, or the chief priests and scribes. Let's, let's look at their reaction to the presence of Jesus. I, re I reckon one way uh, to deal with embarrassing reactions in front of famous people, so as I said before with Keller, like, and the, the nervousness that I started to feel as I got closer to him, and maybe you've had that moment yourself, I reckon one of the best ways to deal with that embarrassing feeling is to become famous yourself. Because you know when you're famous, you feel comfortable among other people who are famous as well, right? Any, anyone's life ambition to be famous? good on you because you will feel less embarrassed and more comfortable among others who are famous too. That, that fame though, and because of the reasons I've described, what, what can happen is you can start to become a bit arrogant. So, so if you're a, a B-lister, you don't waste your time with C-listers. If you're an A-lister, you don't waste your time with anybody. But you know, Beware of this, if, if fame ever finds you, because no one, especially in Australia, no one loves an arrogant celebrity. When it, when it came to religion, the chief priests and scribes thought that they were A-listers, and there was an arrogance that developed. We are the A-listers of Israel. We are the ones that everyone wished they could have time with. We're the ones who have figured out everything to do with God's law and how to live it out. We don't hear much about them in this passage. And what I'm, so what I'm doing here, they're mentioned as the ones who Herod consults to say, where is the king? Where was he to be born? And they say Bethlehem. See, they knew the scriptures really well. We don't hear, that's all we hear from them in this passage, but, but we will hear a, lot, we hear, hear a lot more about them as the gospel unfolds. 
the chief priests and scribes became associated with a group we call the Pharisees, and they were the main group that drove the campaign that ended Jesus' life upon that cross. I'm not sure they knew it at this point. I'm not sure they knew, much, like when Herod came to them and said, who is it, whether they went, oh yeah, that's right, there's a, there is a prophecy, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I'm not sure what they were thinking in that moment. Could this be the one? Could this be the Messiah? But certainly their actions afterwards and the way that they reacted to Jesus suggest that that's not what they were thinking at all. Now, I'm not sure how much they knew at that point how much this the presence of this king would threaten them. You see, these people, these Pharisees, these chief priests and scribes thought that they were the vessel for God's presence. They, they, They didn't need the presence of a king because they were the vessel through their religious commitment through their adherence to the law and through their ability to teach others how to act in in response to that law, they thought they were the vessel and they would usher in the presence of God through their religious perfection. That was their whole MO. The more committed they were to their religion, the higher up in class they would climb. And this is the chief priests we're talking about. These are the ones who are assigned to mediate the presence of God. And then the scribes, the teachers of the law, these were the experts in the Torah. Experts in God's law. They're at the top of the tree. They were the A-listers. But as Jesus grew up and as he began to minister, his presence threatened their position. Again, there's, there's not much in this particular passage about them, so I am going into the rest of the gospel here, but we can find out so much about what happens as the history of the gospels unfolds. Jesus, see, Jesus operated completely outside of their frame what it meant to be religiously pure and holy. He, he, he didn't do the stuff that they said was important and he did the stuff that they thought was wrong. He hung out with the wrong people. He said, but then he went on to say things like, I and my father are one. Before Abraham, I am. Statements like this made them angry because he was suggesting that he was the presence of God. He was God and they were angry because no, we are. And you're not doing things within our frame. And to add fuel to their anger, Jesus would often tell them how wrong they were and how far they were from God. I mean, this is, not, this is Jesus not having read how to win friends and influence people. He was really good at angering religious people. He would tell them how impossible it was for them to usher in the presence of God through their own self-righteousness and their own holiness. And why was it impossible? Because they were their own saviors. The weight of their salvation was on their own shoulders. It was worked out through their commitment to holiness and to righteous living. And the evidence of this self-righteousness showed itself in anger when Jesus would spend heaps and heaps of time with people who were at the other end of the religious spectrum, hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and just generally with sinners. It's made them really angry because who are you as a rabbi to do this? You've got to be seen to be with the right people. And then, as most of you know, how the story ends or maybe just begins, their sense of self-righteousness, their utter conviction that they were God's vessel and Jesus was a heretic, it led them to demand the crucifixion of Jesus who was born king that day. And again, and this is potentially going to sound offensive and harsh, 
but sometimes we are like the chief priests and teachers of the law. We have very impressive religious CVs, our church attendance, our ministry engagement, our scriptural knowledge, our voting for the right party, our praying the right prayers, endorsed by the right people, rejecting those people or, the, or those groups that are in the wrong or evil category. We are very clean. We are very tidy. We are very holy. We are very righteous. And whether it be conscious or subconscious, it is this that we think makes us pleasing to God. This being the result of our own religious effort and our salvation is not on the shoulders of Jesus, it's on our own shoulders, on our CV that we can pull out and show, not, not necessarily God, although one day maybe, but all of you how righteous and pure that I am. We don't actually need Jesus. Sure, sure, we like him, we may even love him, but as an example or a role model, not as a saviour. We see him as a bar that we need to reach, and we will reach it. Look at my list. Jesus threatens our religious effort when he declares there's no other way to the Father but through him. There is no other way to the Father but through him. All that self-righteous work is for nothing. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who, who lived this way for half of his life and then got the gospel and, and lived very differently for the second half of his life. But he would say all of that self-righteous straining and effort, I consider it garbage. I consider it rubbish. And I reckon he would use a few other choice words there to describe all of that self-righteous effort. I wonder if you'd think of it this way. How, how do you respond in the presence of King Jesus? If, if he was here today, would you pull out your CV from your back pocket and say, look at, look at what I've done for you, Jesus. Look at all the stuff that I've done. Look at, look, at my, look at my church attendance, look at, look at, my, look at my prayer life, look at, my, look at my ministry engagement, look at all the things that I did, all the people I hung out with, all the people who say I'm good. Look at, look at all this, Jesus. And the third is a group again. We don't know how many. The songs tell us that there were three kings, but we, we don't know how many there were, and they're never called kings <laughs> in the gospel. They're called magi. Not magi, like the noodles, there's only one G, magi. Let's look at their reaction to the presence of Jesus. And I want you to be surprised by this, because this is a surprising reaction when you consider who these guys were. Get back to this, this thread of meeting famous people for a second though. I think, I think some of our giddiness, or I should own this, some of my giddiness about meeting famous people is because they, they can appear to be so other than me. They can appear to be so untouchable because of their fame. They seem to be extraordinary people and that, that's what makes me look at them and think if I have a chance to be up close, I'm going to totally lose my cool or maybe that's just me with Tim Keller. You know, I looked, at, I looked up on YouTube again, this phrase, we're not worthy because I knew it was in a movie somewhere. I was taken back to Wayne's World. Any Wayne's World fan? Here we go, there's a few hands up there. When Wayne and Garth meet Alice Cooper, and they, they're, they're sort of all giddy and they can't, don't know what to say. And then they get down on their knees and they start bowing. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. <laughs> I can guarantee you, and I have had, I've had the opportunity to meet some famous people. What is consistently true is that they're just people. They're quite ordinary people. They just have something in one aspect of their life that they've become really good at that has risen them to fame. But they're actually quite ordinary people. And I can tell you what I have never done and will never do is bow down and worship someone. 
I would never go to Tim Keller down on my knees and say, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy because I know Tim Keller, get up and slap me. I'm not sure any of us would do that, especially in Australia. (laughs) We'd never bow down at the feet of a celebrity we love, no matter how much we love them. We may scream and we may faint, (laughs) but we wouldn't bow, right? (laughs) I'm just checking, is there anyone that you would bow down to? Because we need to have a few sessions after this, okay, good. You couldn't get a more starkly different reaction when you look at the Magi than what the reaction from the Magi when you compare it to the reaction of Herod and then the chief priests and scribes. You could not get a more stark, starkly different reaction. And there's three ways that Matthew describes their reaction that I want to get to. But before that, it's really important that we understand who they are. Because who they are makes their reaction super surprising. These are not Jewish people, but they are clearly men of note. They've got an audience with the king. They have some authority, some importance, but from a foreign nation, men from the east. We also know that they are pagans who worship the stars because it says that they're looking to the stars to find the king. Now, back then, Jews didn't, they looked upon astrology, they frowned upon it. And astrology where the stars speak to us and they guide us. And, and, and as the church was established, and in those early days, Christians didn't think that was great. Either. You can probably figure out why. Why talk to the stars when we can talk to Jesus? Even today, we would get a bit sketchy if someone came to a prayer meeting and said, the stars have told me today that this is how we're to pray. That's these guys. And not only is it these guys worshiping the stars, it's the star that has led them to Jesus. God is completely working outside of the frame of everything that we thought was right and good. These blokes are pagans, star-worshipping foreigners looking for a boy who's been born king. Not born to be king, but born king. They're outsiders. They're completely outsiders. They were outsiders then, and to be honest, they'd be outsiders now. These are the first foreigners to meet Jesus the first people outside of the Jewish nation to meet Jesus. And here is their reaction. Three ways they react. The first reaction, they are overjoyed. Overjoyed when the star rests above where Jesus is. We found him. They're full of joy. Second way they react, they bow down in his presence and they worship him. They worship, by then he would have been a toddler. They worship A toddler. Have you ever had a toddler before? (laughs) Some of us like to worship them, I know. But others of us, no, we don't worship them. We do other things. But these guys, these star-worshipping foreigner pagans, bow down in the presence of this toddler to worship him. And the third way that they react is that they open their treasures. They open the stuff that they've brought with them, gold, like gold, gold is today what it was then, it's gold. (laughs) They have frankincense and myrrh, expensive, beautiful incense as a gift to this guy. They open their treasures and they pour their treasures upon this king. They give gifts, they don't give their CVs. They don't try to give Jesus their resume or Mary and Joseph the reason why they should be in the room and not other people. They're full of joy, they bow down and worship and they open their treasures. I think, it's, I think it's fascinating that this happens so early in Jesus' life. This is, it, it, really, it really shocks and surprises me that this moment happens before Jesus is a man. 
It happens when he's a baby, a toddler. And it anticipates what would happen down through history because this moment is actually a prophetic moment fulfilled. There's heaps of prophetic writings about the king that would be born and it describes this moment in Isaiah 60 and verse three. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. This is probably where we got the idea that these guys were kings. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Psalm 68, 29, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring you gifts. Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11. We don't know where these guys came from, but maybe they came from Tarshish. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. When we think about these prophetic words, maybe we think about a time in the future or a time in the future from that moment on. Maybe we're thinking about the time when Jesus comes again and all crowns will be taken off heads and placed at his feet. I love that this happens here in this moment, in a moment that anticipates what Jesus would achieve, not just salvation for the Jews, but salvation for all of humanity. These foreign dignitaries recognized who Jesus was, not just king of the Jews, but their king as well. And more than that, it shows, shows through their reaction, their posture before him. They were overjoyed. They bowed down. They worshipped and they gave Jesus their treasures. So what is our reaction to the king? Yeah, the truth is that the reaction of the Magi is the only reaction from us that will end well. What is your posture before Jesus? Herod, was concerned with building up a name for himself to the degree that the birth of the true and forever king, he perceived it as a great threat and he reacted aggressively and militantly to deal with that threat. I wonder, you may not be as aggressive and militant as Herod, but are you more concerned with building your name? Are you more concerned with building up and protecting your treasure, your kingdom? It's, it's probably far more subtle than it was for Herod because here's what I think we can do sometimes, the way that we treat Jesus or react to his presence. We see him as someone who has profound power to help us achieve our dreams and build up our treasure and build up our kingdom. Bless me, bless me, bless me. But your heart is not worship of Jesus, it's worship of self and Jesus will help you with that far more subtle, but still on the same spectrum as Herod. The Pharisees, the chief priests and the scribes, they were concerned with their own holiness, their own righteousness, making sure they did everything right and didn't do the wrong stuff, didn't be seen with the wrong people. But they too saw Jesus as a threat and dealt with him very, well, in the most aggressive way in the end. I wonder today, are you most concerned with your religious appearance? Keeping up your religious duty, make sure you do all the right things and not do all the wrong things. Vote in the right way, associate with the right people, stay clear of the wrong people. Are you more concerned with that? The Magi show us the right way to react to Jesus the right way and the way that ends beautifully. In fact, it never ends because we will always be with him is with joy 
with worship, with humility and sacrifice. And I, I, I need to tell you that this is the right way to react to Jesus because this is the way that he would act, how he would react, how he would live his life with joy, with humility, with sacrifice. Jesus had unquenchable joy that, um, that empowered his life. He's described as, his life is described as that of a suffering servant, even to the point of what was set before him, the agony of the cross, but for the joy on the other side, he endured it. Jesus was powered by supernatural joy, the same joy that the Magi experienced in that moment when the star landed above the house. Jesus goes beyond warm humility. You know, we look at someone who's humble and we look at their character and we go, they're a humble person. I like being around them. They're not arrogant. They're not full of themselves. Jesus went so far beyond humility. He endured humiliation. Humiliation at the hands of the Roman government and before the mocking voices of his Jewish people when he hung naked on that cross. Don't let the pictures of Easter fool you. He didn't have a nice little loincloth over his lower region. He was completely naked. The only thing on him was a crown of thorns and some nails in his hands and feet. You cannot get a more powerful picture of humiliation. Jesus endured humiliation. And Jesus sacrifices not only his treasure, but his very self, the priceless treasure of heaven, which was ultimately an act of worship towards his heavenly father. And this is Jesus, this is the king we worship. This is the king whose presence we seek. This is the king who gives us joy. This is the king who we bow down and worship and sacrifice for. This is the king who was lifted up, not on a throne in celebration at some kind of inauguration of all that he was and all that he had conquered, but he was lifted up. He gave up his rights. He gave up his power. He gave up his treasure in exchange for a Roman cross. The moment our king was lifted up was that moment of humiliation. This is the king that we love, the king that we serve. When we, when we bow before this king, we bow before that cross. We accept, when we, we, when we accept him and we follow him, we also need to, to bear our own cross. We need to be willing and we need to have this moment in our joy, in our bowing down, in our worship, in our sacrifice, this moment of exchanging our name, exchanging our rights, exchanging our power, exchanging our treasure to know Him and to follow Him. Death, death itself was the way in which our King overcame the world. So He could say, in this world, you will have much trouble but take heart, I have overcome the world. And this world needs us to be like Jesus, to show the way to overcome, not through getting more power, not through building stronger kingdoms, but through submission. Knowing it's easy to submit when you know that the world cannot take away the treasure we have in Jesus. see to live in this life to follow Jesus in this life we need to remind ourselves constantly that the way of Jesus is the way of the cross 
We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.